Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 34 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday, the 25th of September. Leon, what's on the schedule for today? Well, we've got a terrific interview with Tim Buckley. I've known Tim for years. He's a great analyst. And uh, he is now the Director of Energy Finance Studies at Uh, Australasia at the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. And he's going to be talking to us all about the coal mining industry and Adani's Carmichael mine and why it's unlikely to go ahead. It's going to be fascinating talking to him. Yeah, really interesting. He's a man with great depth of understanding in the industry. He really understands the coal industry. So listen to him. It's going to be great. And And when he's talking about the coal industry, of course, he's not only talking about the coal industry in Australia, he's talking about the coal industry right around the world. And it's in deep, deep trouble, as he points out. And then we got a terrific interview with the BT economist um, Chris Caton. He's going to be talking to us all about how he expects the Turnbull government's going to treat the economy. We interviewed him on Skype, and as uh, you possibly know, uh, Skype had a bit of a um, slight meltdown. We had to talk to Chris on his mobile, so the sound's not quite what we'd like, but uh, the, the message is pretty good. It's very, very good. Well, let's now talk to Tim Buckley. Tim Buckley, what's your analysis of Adani? My analysis of Adani is that the group is strategically moving away from decisions made four or five years ago when the world was completely different and that the Carmichael project is not only financially unviable, but it's probably no longer strategically relevant and therefore it's purely a matter of ego as an as to the company's positioning going forward. I guess what wouldn't help would be that they had lost their foremost champion in Tony Abbott. That certainly would not help, that's correct. But the, but the issue is fundamentally, isn't it, that uh, the whole business model was predicated around coal being worth about 150 bucks. now it's down $60 and heading south. That's correct. I mean, the, the numbers might work at 100 uh, but certainly with the coal price, as you say, sub $60 and with the forward price looking at uh, pricing more like $55, $54 a tonne US uh, in nominal terms five to six years forward, the financial markets are not optimistic of any turnaround anytime soon. And uh, ultimately, one of the other major hamstrings that the project faces is the whole issue of uh, low quality coal. The coal has an energy content of about 5,000 kcal, which is about 15 to 20% below the benchmark. And the ash content is 26%, which is about double the benchmark. So the quality of the coal is very low for Australian export standards. Uh, the issue, though, too, is that, I mean, I believe you have uh, uncovered research showing that India is moving away from buying coal. Is that correct? Um, moving away from buying and relying on imported coal, I certainly wouldn't suggest that they're moving away from coal. Uh, the new government under Prime Minister Modi has flagged that they want to significantly ramp up investment in renewable energy, significantly ramp up investment in grid efficiency and also ramp up dramatically domestic coal production. And that's, to me, largely predicated on uh, two factors. One is energy security. And, you know, the the more diversified your electricity system, the more security you have. And secondly, the fact that if you're... um, Looking at the metrics, the cost metrics of electricity generation in India, imported coal is in fact the most expensive expensive new source of electricity generation. So 
given the Prime Minister Modi's government is very focused on trying to reduce inflation, reduce interest rates, stabilise the current account deficit and bring a very economically rational approach, logic says you're not going to build a new electricity system based on imported coal. And that's exactly what Energy Minister Modi uh, Goyal has said, that in fact he plans to cease thermal coal imports within two to three years. If uh, you have India winding back on coal imports, China's certainly winding back on imports, that's going to put the whole coal industry in a lot of problems because they're the two big buyers. Absolutely. And maybe to um, specify, we're talking specifically about the seaborne or the internationally traded coal market because, uh, I mean, China is largely self-sufficient and it's going to take a long time to move their whole system away from coal. But as you say, coal imports in the last 18 months into China are down 45, 50%. So there's dramatic moves away from traded seaborne coal. And in fact, I would argue Japan, which is Australia's biggest end market, is also probably um, looking at peak coal, thermal coal imports in 2014 or 2015 because they're doing a major restart of their nuclear. They're doing a major $30, $40 billion a year investment in solar. They're looking at new wind farms. They're looking at grid efficiency, huge amounts of um, energy efficiency initiatives. So if anything, Japan is likely to... uh, see a declining demand profile going forward as well. So as you suggest, the seaborne thermal coal market is very much under threat and I'd argue in structural decline. That raises some interesting issues, particularly for Australian coal mining industry. Uh, where, where do you see tracking? Do you see more mining closures? Do you see them falling further behind? Um, I think it's critical the Australian coal industry and the Australian government get its mind around that aspect of structural decline and the risk thereof because the last thing we as the second largest exporter of coal in the world want to do is flood the world market with more supply when demand is actually declining. So I think we need a a major strategic rethink for our industry and um, predicated on the whole idea the world is transitioning away from a reliance on thermal coal towards renewables, towards energy efficiency, towards hydro, uh, towards a more diverse electricity market. And uh, the sooner we recognise that, the sooner we can start the transition and therefore maximise the benefit to our economy and minimise the the damage in transition. Where does that leave the coal industry, though? Uh, I think you can see that in the share prices of the major Western coal companies. I mean, Peabody's share price, which is trumpets as the world's, the Western world's largest coal producer, it's down 96% in the last five years. And most of its US peers are actually down worse than that. I mean, even someone like Whitehaven here in Australia is down 70, 80% in the last five years. So the equity markets are flagging. The coal companies are under absolute siege. And uh, unfortunately, they continue to just rely on the the old saying, oh, commodities are cyclical, we'll see about. And if it's not cyclical, if it's like the mobile phone industry or the telco industry with um, or the internet, to me, it's structural like those industries. And ultimately, you have to adapt to survive. Given that, given that it's structural, what can they do to survive? Um, the first and most important thing is to acknowledge reality, to acknowledge that the Chinese market has just dropped almost 50%. Import coal has dropped 50% and stop telling everyone it's just going to bounce magically back up. And to stop ignoring the fact that the Energy Minister of India is saying he wants to cease thermal coal imports. I mean, I don't hear anyone in the coal industry even acknowledging that. 
And in fact, Peabody's last result said India's imports grew 35%. And I'm looking at the data and saying, well, it might have grown 35% in the first quarter of this year, but it was flat in the second quarter and it was down year to date 5% in the third quarter. That's not 35% growth. So the first step in transforming is to actually acknowledge there is a fundamental strategic long-term transition occurring and um, to start battening down the hatches. I mean, the companies are dramatically cutting costs, but when you're cutting costs without reducing the oversupply, you're not actually addressing the core problem. So they should cut back on the amount they're supplying markets? Yeah, well, at the moment, I mean, Adani is still talking about opening up the Galilee and our government, as you mentioned, was until last week anyway, looking at using taxpayer funds to, to increase global seaborne thermal coal by 10, 20, 30 percent. Not the Australian share, but to global volume of seaborne coal by 30 percent in a market that's declining. Um, the whole Chamois Watermark project is aimed at expanding supply. The Drayton South project is aimed at expanding supply. The last thing we need to do is expand new expensive supply at a time when demand is declining. So uh, to me, we need to get off this fanciful thinking that the, the industry is just cyclical and effectively reduce new supply. I'm not talking dramatic cuts in existing mines because ultimately we need to transition and Australia has a position to play in a smaller but still relevant seaborne market for a decade or two to come. So we've got time to transition, but the first step to do is actually acknowledge the magnitude of the problem and realising that it's not going to get better just by wishing it so. Now, just a final question. I noticed a news report the other week saying that Adani was in the, in the business of selling solar energy to what was going to be India's biggest solar plant. They seem to be positioning themselves away from coal. Where does that leave Carmichael? Do you think they'll shut it down or do you think they'll just leave it open when running with an office of five people? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, there two aspects to that. Firstly, over the last eight months, the Adani Group in India has announced seven major solar project developments and in aggregate they represent about 16 billion US dollars of new capex plans to really ramp up what's a very small part at the moment of the Adani group to become one of the biggest solar players in the whole of India and at the same time three months ago they 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 did an initial public offering and listed a company Adani Transmissions which is aimed at really bringing a lot of private capital to the grid transmission system of India, which is another major area that needs upgrading. Much greater energy efficiency, grid efficiency is required, but much more capacity. And Adani has identified those two areas as major new growth areas for the Adani group. And they involve spending, as I mentioned, tens of billions of dollars in new capital. So at the end of the day, the Adani Enterprises is only a 1.1 billion market cap company for for it to proceed with a 10 billion US dollar new coal mine project in Australia, the first question you ask is, is it strategically relevant anymore? It was relevant five years ago, but the world's changed. I think Adani's moved on and the Adani assets here in Australia, the Carmichael proposal, they might have spent $1.3 billion, but um, to me, that is a stranded asset. They need to write it off, move on and... Uh, I think what's most likely going to happen is they'll wait, try and get approvals for the project and then put it on the ice for, for one, two, three, five years. And if the world ever does see an upturn in demand for seaborne thermal coal, they could reevaluate it down the track. 
but have the proposal sitting there approved and ready to go, but effectively mothballed. That's how I see it happening. Tim Buckley, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Well, there you go. As Tim says, coal's pretty much on the nose. That's right. Uh, even in China, although China still be countries still be using coal, particularly in steelmaking, but uh, China's got its own resource. I think China's got I think China's moving away from it, and India's moving away from it. When when you've got the two biggest uh, consumers of coal moving away from it, it means the coal industry is in deep deep trouble. They're going to have to reposition themselves, and that's going to mean they're going to have to produce less coal, as Tim says. And of course, even in Australia, you know, with brown coal in Victoria, we've got uh, Malcolm Turnbull saying that solar and wind power is going to become much more important. Well, let's take a look at it, yes. And now let's talk to Chris Caton. Chris Caton, uh, what's your assessment of uh, Malcolm Turnbull's uh, ascendancy to the Prime Ministership and its impact on the economy? Uh, well, um, it's certainly going to be interesting. Um, I suppose in the short term, uh, the, the thing that everybody would be looking for is just a belief, if you like, that the adults are in charge now and uh, that there will be some lift to uh, both business and consumer confidence and that will all be positive for the economy. He does also need to, um, uh, to restart the economic narrative, uh, if you like. Um, we need to get away from uh, this belief that there is a debt and deficit disaster out there. Uh, but, uh, but at the same time, um, he and uh, Treasurer Morrison uh, need, to, uh, need to basically sell the story. And the story is that uh, although there's no immediate fiscal problem, there is a medium-term fiscal issue, which basically comes down to this. Um, we either have to cut spending below what otherwise would be, of course, or we have to raise taxes and probably both. And I guess the, um, you know, this is never an easy easy message to sell to the public, um, but of course um, the, 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 the bit that was missing in uh, Joe Hockey's term of, as Treasurer is, is, is any belief that the burden of fiscal adjustment was being fairly shared, and they essentially have to sell that message. We're all in this together. Uh, the, we do have to pull back the rate of growth of spending, so some people who benefit from spending are going to be hurt by that. We do have to raise revenues. Uh, almost certainly the GST has to go up uh, and um, and the you know the previous well the previous economic administration if you like um, kept dangling out there the idea that um, personal income taxes had to be lower particularly at the top end uh, that is pie in the sky that's in in the current fiscal situation that is simply unattainable um, now uh, whether or not uh, uh, I suppose also what we need from this government in the economic area is is at least an appearance that there's more consultation going on, both within the government and also between government and the private economic agents, that is that is business. Um, the, there have been some people suggesting uh, there'd be a, a kind of economic statement uh, prior to uh, you know, prior to the end of the year. I think that's probably almost rushing things. There, there will be a media economic and fiscal outlook, but if I were them, I'd be working on uh, re-establishing confidence with business uh, uh, and leaving all any major fiscal adjustment to to the budget next year, by which time they should have managed to sell the story. And uh, I mean, the issue with GST was that they had floated the idea of GST. The, the previous administration had done this, but the states had uh, couldn't agree on it. So the previous administration had said, "Well, it's all too hard." Uh, yes, correct. Um, the um 
and and this has been this has come about because um, this rather ludicrous piece of um, cosmetics that um, that was introduced when the GST was introduced. That is, that somehow or other, it is a state tax just collected by the federal government. This this is really nonsense. Um, but 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 at the time it was said, we won't change this tax without agreement by the state. So they are stuck with that. So yeah, that's uh, uh, more people to bring along, more people to sell the story to, if you like. But the plain honest fact is, we do need uh, to do at least some of the action on the revenue side. That you've got to go to the big pieces, and uh, and that has to include the GST. That means either a higher rate or a broader base, uh, or both. You know, Australia's base, that is, the base of its GST relative to total consumer spending, is lower than almost every other country that has a GST, and that's mainly because we exclude health and we exclude education and we exclude fresh food. How do you rank? Uh, I mean, how do you rank uh, Scott Morrison as a as a treasurer? I mean, uh, I noticed yesterday on the Insiders, Nicky Saba was saying that he would have uh, Peter Costello as a mentor, and no shortage of people from Costello's administration to help him out. Uh, what's your view about yeah. that? I'm prepared. I'm prepared to wait and see to judge the man on on what he does. He um he, he has been rated uh, as quite successful in the portfolios um, uh, that he has held. That depends, I guess, on on how much you wanted the boats stopped, how how much you thought that was a sensible a sensible and humanitarian policy. But as a as an economic spokesman, um, I don't think he should be prejudged. Right, and of course uh, we have Kelly O'Dwyer now as the Minister for Revenue, as the Assistant Treasurer. Uh, correct, correct. But um, the you know the well, Treasury and Finance, of course, do um, you know all the work is done by the public servants, and the uh, I suppose you know, these these people need to get essentially established relationships with their uh, with their departments, and where possible, take their department's advice. There's so much accumulated economic knowledge within those two departments that the, the politicians basically should be uh, should should start from the view that what they're telling them is probably the way to go. I'm interested in uh, your your view about how they have to actually sell the message better. I mean, I, I think uh, Peter Costello is going to be on Four Corners tonight and he's going to say the big problem that the Abbott government had was that they were elected in September 2013 and they had all that time to sell a budget and they failed to do it. Uh, they failed to communicate what was needed. That said, how how do you rank their chances of actually doing that? Because there's going to be have to be some hard decisions will have to be made. Yes, um, but you know, as, as I said, I think if it's if it's painted in 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 a way where it's seen that the burden is being shared, and that's something that the previous uh, you know, refer to them as the, the hockey Abbott economic administration uh, never really managed, and and they put a foot wrong also because they massively exaggerated the extent of the current fiscal problem. So we had all this talk about debt and deficit disaster. It's quite clear that it would be nicer if the deficit was smaller than it is now. It's it's also quite clear that all that we've spent two years basically talking a load of rubbish about how big Australia's government debt is. And that um, you know the idea that we had this massive short-term problem that had to be fixed, and then they delivered a budget which said that they called it tough but fair. It wasn't actually tough. Uh, there was almost nothing. The rate of growth of, uh, of pensions were curtailed. The 
$7 co-payment um, was at least proposed, but but there was widespread perception there wasn't much being done at the top end. And and I guess they didn't really, well they didn't lay the groundwork for this budget. I think that's the that's the story that's the trick really. And you'd have to say that you know that Malcolm Turnbull is a better communicator of this of this message, and Scott Morrison is probably going to be a better seller of it than uh, Joe Hockey. And do you see the them uh, bring business on board? I mean, business seems to have endorsed them. Uh, do you see business supporting them? In their in their reshuffle in in the remade cabinet and uh, in their attempt to get the budget back on track, I, I think certainly um, business was concerned about just the ongoing political malaise in uh, Canberra, and this will certainly serve as a circuit breaker. And when you look at the the new team and compare it with the old team, if you like. Um, I think there's, there are grounds for some optimism. Uh, so if, if only the, because this is going to act as a circuit breaker, um, I think this has to be a, a positive move for the economy. And uh, you would see businesses supporting them more than they have in the past? Well, the, uh, I suppose the, uh, you know, the, the, the coalition has always been the favoured um, side for business anyway. Um, so I'm not sure the degree of support necessarily changes, but the degree of confidence in the government, um, my, my suspicion is, will be increased. I would, I would expect from on the base of what you're saying is that we can expect the next few business confidence numbers and consumer confidence numbers will show an uptick. Would that be right? If we don't get an uptick in business and consumer confidence in the short term, number one, I'd be very surprised, and number two, uh, yeah, we'll just make... Um, this managing of the Australian economy even harder. We, um, for some time now, for literally the whole term of the coalition, we've been going through this transition from um, an economy driven by mining, capital spending, and rising commodity prices to uh, one where you know we're losing income because commodity prices are falling. We're desperately seeking something to uh, to take over from mining capital spending. The lower exchange rate helps there, but we desperately need a turnaround, a pickup in non-mining capital spending. All of the anticipation figures are not good in that area and, and it's because confidence is lacking. So um, yeah, the, it's vital that the confidence does pick up and I see no reason why it should. Chris Caton, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Thanks very much. Bye. What do you think, Leon? Very much a wait and see from him. He knows that uh, when Tony Abbott got into government, uh, consumer confidence skyrocketed because people were happy to see the back of the Gillard Rudd government, and um, then it went down. So let's just wait and see. Anyway, uh, to this week's news, and in a sweeping shake-up of the coalition industry, Scott Morrison was, as expected, moved from social services to treasurer. Joe Hockey, on Sunday night, officially resigned from Parliament. Now, Hockey, of course, became treasurer when the Abbott government came to office in September 2013. He's been the member for North Sydney for almost 20 years. Kelly O'Dwyer will be appointed Minister for Small Business. She'll be assistant treasurer, replacing Josh Frydenberg, who will slip into Cabinet as Minister for Resources, Energy in Northern Australia. Bruce Bilson, who is Small Business Minister, has been been dumped from Cabinet, that was a surprise, along with Erica Betts, Kevin Andrews, Mr Hockey and Ian McFarlane, and Michaela Cash will be the new Minister for Employment, Women and Public Service. That's right, and we've got a female as uh, Minister of Defence as well. That's right, that's right, Marisa Twain. So that's going to be fascinating. First time since Federation.
Now, Australia's new Treasurer Scott Morrison has foreshadowed future tax cuts. Uh, in an interview with News Corp, Scott Morrison said he wanted to take Australia back to a system that reflected the Howard Costello era and was in favour of lowering the top marginal rate. He also foreshadowed spending cuts later on. That's right. He says uh, Australia's got a spending problem, not a revenue problem. That's right. And he said that the coalition had failed to rein it in. So let's watch that space. Interestingly enough, the new Minister for Resources, Energy in Northern Australia, Josh Frydenberg, has foreshadowed that wind farms and solar energy will be a key part of the government's energy platform. Now, while former Prime Minister Tony Abbott and former Treasurer Joe Hockey attacked wind farms, claiming their aesthetics offended them, uh, Mr Frydenberg told 774 ABC Melbourne that renewables were part of the government's energy mix. And his words were, I think wind farms, I think solar, I think they all have a role to play. Now, Frydenberg's comments coincide with reports to staff at the Australian Renewable Energy Arena, established by the former Labor government to increase renewable energy use, are being transferred from the Industry Department to the Department of Environment, as is the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which the former regime had tried to ban from investing in wind or small-scale scalar. And the corporation had reported to the Finance Minister and Treasurer. Now, it's going to be reporting to the Environment Minister. And I'd say these developments would give the renewable sector some hope for the future, particularly with investment in the sector freezing up. And ABS data showing that the sector's lost about 2,500 jobs over the past two years. Now, a weekly reading of consumer confidence has surged nearly 9% in the week that Malcolm Turnbull took over from Tony Abbott as Australia's Prime Minister. Confidence has been down around 7% over the fortnight before the Liberal leadership spill, but bounced back 8.7%. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Confidence Index is now 114.5, slightly higher than the average of 112.7 since 1990, which is a vote of confidence in Mr Turnbull. That's right. It's also pressure on him to perform as fast pretty quickly. That's right. Now, the small business lobby has raised concerns about Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull booting small business minister Bruce Bilson from Cabinet, and it's even suggesting the PM might be listening to the big end of town. And Peter Strong, the Chief Executive Officer of the Council of Small Business Associations, suggested vested interests had him removed. And those comments follow a survey of smart company readers last week, which found that 43% said they wanted to Turnbull to keep Bilson in the small business portfolio. Yeah, I think it's all over this competition um control that he's talking about. Now to global news and Chinese President Xi Jinping has defended his government's economic stewardship and said that China's slowing down growth and market fluctuations won't deter needed reforms. In the first interview with foreign ministers since Chinese stocks skidded this Mr Xi told the Wall Street Journal that government's intervention to arrest the plunge was necessary to, in his words, defuse systemic risks. And on the slowdown that's appeared sharper than both global markets and Beijing expected, Xi urged foreign investors to take the long view. He compared the world's second largest economy to a vessel in rough seas. And his comments coincide with the National Development and Reform Commission declaring that China's full-year growth rate will be kept at around 7%. But the Asian Development Bank has foreshadowed China's growth will slip to 6.8% and 6.7% in 2016. Also, a key gauge of China's manufacturing activity has plunged to a six and a half year low and that's added to the concerns surrounding the slowdown of the world's uh, second largest economy the Keijing preliminary manufacturing index fell to 47 in September and that's a worry and that's to sent markets into turmoil and the ASX yesterday clo- ASX 200 yesterday closed below 5,000 as a result at the same time the International Monetary Fund has warned that China's economic woes will hit Australia the hardest of all the advanced economies and in an address delivered in China the IMF's Deputy Managing Director Min Zhu said a halving of investment growth in China over the next five years would reduce Australia's GDP growth by one percentage point over the same period and that would cost Australia's GDP 16 billion now that estimate is based on the Chinese government's forecast that investment will fall from 46% of GDP to around 35% over the next 5 to 10 years because China's shifting its growth away from export 
impacts to domestic consumption. Now, under Dr. Zhu's modelling, each percentage point decline in China's growth would reduce Australia's GDP growth by 0.2 of a percentage point. And the only countries that would be more affected by the slowdown would be Zambia and Chile. That's a curious uh, party to be with. Although I don't think it's that bad, Gary. I mean, sure, we've got problems with iron ore and coal, but they're shifting their consumption, they're shifting their economy to domestic consumption, which means there's lots of room in Australia to participate in areas like financial services, legal services, healthcare, food. Food, yeah, food's a big one. And and that's that's education. Yep. And all of that all of that's opening. The only the only issue there is there's a lot of other countries competing with Australia. Of course, no other country could compete with Australia when it came to iron ore and coal. Well, yeah, that's true, but we do have some advantages. Our agribusinesses are very efficient. We speak English and we can teach English and China needs to be able to speak English. That's right. To trade yeah. around that's the world. Right. That's right. Now, Greece's Alexis Tsipras and his left-wing Syriza party secured an emphatic re-election win on Sunday that returns him to the Prime Minister's seat as Greeks voted in the anti-establishment coalition government that he led from January to August. But unlike his first turbulent spell in office when Tsipras fought against austerity policies that Greece's creditors won, he's now expected to implement the austerity-heavy bailout program. And Sunday's outcome makes it 41-year-old leader the first Greek Prime Minister in the country's six-year debt crisis to win re-election. And that victory comes despite the disappointment of many of Cyprus's supporters with his U-turn on austerity. Now, antipathy to Greece's more established political parties, who are widely game for misgoverning the country over the decades and bring, down, bring about the crisis, appears to have outweighed the disillusionment about Syriza's climb down on bailout terms. But there's a lot of work ahead. Uh, they've got a review due in October by the lenders on whether Athens is abiding by the cash for reforms program, so the clock's ticking. The Greek parliament, which is due to reconvene on October the 1st, will have to revise the 2015 budget in light of the income and and tax and pension reforms. And then there's a recapitalization of Greek banks, which um, has to be completed by the end of December. The Under the bailout agreement, the Greek parliament has to pass a new recapitalization framework by October 15. And the quality of the bank loan portfolios has to be assessed by September the 30th. And Greece needs to get its productivity up. Cyprus is saying that debt is the first issue. Well, yeah, it's kind of big, isn't it? Well, yeah, uh, and that that has to be sorted out, and uh, the IMF has declared it's unsustainable. Well, they're well over two hundred percent of GDP, aren't they? So, uh, yeah, so so that's a, that's a big problem. The other big story, Gary, is about Volkswagen. Volkswagen CEO Martin Winterkorn has resigned amid the emissions scandal today. And what's what's happened was that Volkswagen admitted that 11 million vehicles worldwide have been equipped with devices that cheat pollution tests and other companies are now being targeted as authorities around the world have announced investigations and threatened legal action. And the German government has called for a probe into whether VW and other car companies have cheated on tests in Germany, as well as that the US Environmental Protection Agency and the California Air Resources Board has begun procuring other manufacturers' vehicles to test whether they've been fitted with so-called defeat devices designed to bypass environmental standards. And as a result, shares in Daimler, BMW, Renault and PSA Peugeot Citroën has fallen along with shares in Volkswagen, which has fallen more than 35% this week. And the EPA has accused Volkswagen of equipping nearly half a million VW and Audi diesel vehicles with illegal devices designed to get around these emissions tests. Volkswagen has admitted that there are 11 million of these vehicles on the road now. Yep, that's right. So the price will plunge, car sales will rise again because people need cars, and some investors will make quite a packet. Well, yeah, but the U.S. Justice Department is investigating the scandal, so Volkswagen's top managers risk criminal charges, and the company could be paying something like eighteen billion dollars in fines. Well, that that would be even for Volkswagen. That's that, that's massive. That would be massive. And uh, the question is, how does this affect the? Uh, auto industry and uh, Stuart Pearson who's an analyst at XM BMP Paribus told the Financial Times the VW was unlikely to be the only car company gaming the system and his words were the artificial gaming of emissions tests threatens to become the car industry's 
LIBOR moment. I think that's a great quote, isn't it? <laughs> a great it? quote. Now, in Australia, Gary, the housing-led recovery could be running out of steam with investment house Morgan Stanley saying that tighter lending rules and oversupply of apartments and slowing migration rates will slow down the momentum. And in a research note, Morgan Stanley says housing activity has peaked and the risk of the recession has cranked up a notch. And it said that despite record low interest rates, the rules set down by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority to cool soaring property prices have actually reduced growth momentum. And more importantly, it's warned that the recession risks have intensified as a slowdown comes at a time when the drag on GDP is expected to continue through 2016. And meanwhile, finally, Gary, Woolworths is investing $65 million over the next 12 months, making its stores competitive with Coles and withstanding the Aldi juggernaut. And it's upgrading trolleys, fixing rusty shelves and holes in the floor, improving lighting and signage, removing gates in front of the stores to make them more welcoming, increasing the number of staff hours to ensure that customers don't have to queue at the checkouts. And the retail is also looking at changing its business model and creating four types of stores, premium, mainstream, mainstream, rural and budget. And that would better reflect shopping habits shaped by demographic and geographic differences. You have to wonder why some of this wasn't done before. You do, you do. But there's... St- holes in the floor? Holes in the floor. Wow. They had clearly uh, managed Previous management had not invested enough in them. Yeah, quite right. And simple things like maintenance. That's right. A little old lady disappearing down the floor of a supermarket. (laughs) And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. Next week, we have a terrific interview with Mark McDonald and Mike Wick. They're from a firm called Appster. Yeah, one of the most successful sort of startup promotion. It's an interesting company, Appster. It doesn't actually make apps itself very often, but it promotes and advises people who do. Anyway, that's it for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.